Plain Dealer got national, international attention over the weekend with regard to a comic strip. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, and we are going to start with Dilbert. Layla, why did the plane dealer make the call to stop carrying the comic strip? Well, Chris, as you explained in your column, which has now gone viral, uh, Scott Adams, the creator of the Dilbert comic strip, went on this racist rant this last week on his Coffee with Scott Adams online video show. And so our company decided to stop printing his cartoon as a result of that. And he, his his video really blows the mind because the consequences are so predictable for him. It's hard to believe someone would ruin their own life like this, but he did. He, he cited a recent Rasmussen survey, which he said shows nearly half of all Black people do not agree with the phrase, it's okay to be white. He said that attitude is akin to belonging to a hate group. This this Looney Tune said in his video that he started identifying as black so he could be on the winning team. And he said, as of today, he's going to re-identify as white because he didn't want to be associated with a hate group. He said, quote, I would say, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. And he said, there's no fixing this. You just have to escape. And uh, he, he said that's why he chose to live in an entirely white community and, and that it makes no sense anymore for white citizens to help black Americans. He said, it's over. Don't even think it's worth trying. So, I mean, listeners, you, you kind of have to go watch this for yourself to grasp the full scope and impact. It's really unbelievable. But until our company decides what to replace Dilbert with, readers are going to see a gray box where, where it's been appearing. And, and we should also men- mention that his syndicator has now dropped him as well. So other news companies are going to have to be making that decision, too. Yeah, we, we caught the viral wave because we're, I think, the first to announce it. Uh, the rest of the advanced local um, newsrooms also made that decision. And then a day later, the Washington Post, the LA Times followed our lead. Uh, I believe Gannett made the decision on Friday as well. We should point out that that question, um, is it okay to be white, is a racist trope. It's a phrase white supremacists use as a recruiting tool. So, so it's not just a basic question. It's a loaded question that is as offensive as hell to black people. So, which he doesn't explain at all. He just does this bizarro logic. I look. I I, I called you, Layla, on Friday mm-hmm. and said before I published the column, saying, "Is there any chance this is a deep fake?" Because it was so ridiculous. Um, and what I was, I, I guess I shouldn't say I was surprised by the reaction. Overwhelmingly, people approved what we did. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want. We don't do. We don't give financial support to people who espouse racism. So this was an easy call. As soon as you saw the video, it's like, we're done. But I got a little bit worried that it was so over-the-top ridiculous that it might not be real, that somebody might have created it. We did some checking, and it indeed was real. I did get a significant response from just, I can't describe it as anything other than abject racist. People, there was a group sometimes with their real names that said the most vile things you can call a person, uh, which doesn't get under mm-hmm, my skin, mm-hmm. but you marvel at the creativity. Uh, but 
but what was really troubling is the number of people that said, you didn't watch that video. If you watched that video, you'd see there was nothing racist about it. And what he's saying is true. And I, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, I, I, if you can't, if you watch that video and you cannot see how wildly vile and offensive it is, where can you have a conversation? Right. And I wanted to pose a question to you all today. We've all known for our entire lifetime that there is an undercurrent of serious racism in this country, that there is a group of white people that hate black people simply because they're black. But for most of our lifetimes, to speak that out loud in public was was just something you didn't do. You might talk about it with your families or with your kids, but it was not in the public sphere. Donald Trump made it okay to go out into the open with it. And Tucker Carlson every night tells people pretty much it's okay to be racist. And I wonder, you know, you, you, you can't get over these kind of bad feelings without having discussions about them. But were we better off when these people were shoved into the shadows and, and did not have the approval to go public with such vile thoughts? I think so. I think so. I mean, don't you feel like at, le at least we we were uh, better off as a society when we didn't have to field these kinds of of, uh, of uh, opinions? But how do you get past it if you don't put it out in the open and talk about it? I, I, I'm with you, I think. I think we'd be better off if this was just roundly condemned. You're not yeah, going to yeah. say that kind of thing. It's not okay. I mean, it's not going to happen as long as Rupert Murdoch, who's not even American, is raking in the bucks by fostering racist thoughts. But I don't know. I just, this is so vile. I think one of the things that that uh, just annoys me so much about this is is the reframing of this whole issue as, as you know, using the phrase cancel culture to reframe mm -hmm. it as an, an infringement of free speech. I mean, the problem with that argument is, yeah, okay, you have the right to say what you please, but we have the right to determine what content appears on our platforms. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of comic strips in the world, and we don't have to put money in the pocket of a racist. And also, while everyone has the right to speak freely, that right comes with the understanding that there are also consequences mm -hmm. to your speech. And in this case, news organizations like ours don't want to be associated with this dude. And that's the consequence. And that's it. So <laughs> cancel it's culture be damned. <laughs> question because Chris you wrote this huge column about civil discourse and how to talk to people who don't agree with you but if both sides have to be willing to talk civilly to each other and listen with understanding and we're talking about a group that is not there to listen and learn now, the the people that I received the hateful stuff from and it was quite a bit I mean it, last night they were leaving messages on my phone they were actually calling me to, to say some of this stuff, I, 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 there's no change in their minds. Mm -hmm. CNN wanted to do, Jim Acosta show, wanted to do an interview, and, and I turned it down in part because I was already a lightning rod for all of this. Partly I was... I hadn't shaved and didn't really have a good internet connection. <laughs> so, but, but really, and I'd said, you know, the columns, what I wrote said all I had to say. But, but I, I just, it's... It's really disturbing. I you always knew it was there, but they this group feels energized and they feel so righteous about it. Yeah, entitled. Um, that I I don't know how you deal with it. I just don't. It, it it that was the most disturbing part is the number of people who felt free to send thoughts to 
I'm the editor. I could take all that stuff and publish it. You're sending it to a news organization under your real name. If I publish that stuff, you'd be, you'd be castigated, man. It's like, what are you doing? But I, would I'm they? Not, I mean, that's the whole point is they're saying other people agree with me. And Scott Adams is on Twitter saying, if you listen to the whole thing, you couldn't believe it was racist. You're just being manipulated by the mainstream media. So there are more people out there who, and I don't know that that number has grown or they're just more vile and public. Well, one last thing. Scott Adams did say that he didn't hear from anybody that what he said wasn't true. So I'll say it right here. Wasn't true. There well, you go. Can I, You're listening. Can I chime in as, oh, as a person yeah, of please. color? Um, you know, because racism has never been far from my family at all. I mean, two generations of my family had to fight against redlining and racism. So to me, this is nothing new. I just think that social media supercharged it because these people are able to connect through the internet. So yeah, I mean, yeah. This is that's a good point. I know, but how do you how do you how do you fix that? I mean, look, you're right. You're you're the same generation I am. You've always known it's there, but never before has it been this this open and affirmed. I mean, these folks are getting affirmation from a former president and one of the leading broadcasters in the country that it's okay to feel that way. That's new, right? Oh, you, no. You it's have, Well, we before. used to have the fairness doctrine, although people say that the fairness doctrine wouldn't work today. But, you know, we grew up with the fairness doctrine, you and me, Chris, and, you know, people of today didn't. So they get to see, you know, propaganda disguised as news. Yeah, it's frightening. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cuyahoga County Jail is in the crosshairs yet again, this time for keeping people behind bars without reason, sometimes for weeks. What are the allegations in a lawsuit filed on Friday, Lisa? Yeah, this potential class action lawsuit was filed in federal court late Thursday, and it could have up to 289 plaintiffs who are accusing the county of keeping prisoners in the jail longer than they are legally allowed, which is also known as overdetention. Uh, these were This lawsuit focuses on the years of 2021 and 2022, and it was filed by several attorneys and law firms, uh, a Chicago law firm, Cleveland attorney Drew Legardo, a New York civil rights attorney, and the Justice Catalyst Law nonprofit civil rights organization. So everybody's weighing in. It's filed on behalf of Cleveland resident Alana Dunn, who spent two days in jail after police and prosecutors declined to press charges against her. And so the lawsuit alleges that overdetention ranged from one to 56 days. There were 159 people overdetained in 2021 and 130 in 2022. And they got this data from monthly reports that show that Cuyahoga County overbilled the city of Cleveland for inmates who should have been released. As we know, Cleveland stopped taking inmates in the jail and, and put them now in the county jail. And they were paid like $99 a day for these, for these uh, uh, inmates. So, yeah, this sounds pretty serious. There was a thought when this began that the county was doing this intentionally to get more money from the city. And Frank Jackson actually assigned somebody who's in, in his administration to do the study every month to see which when were these people supposed to be out? We're not paying beyond that. I would have thought that the county would have fixed the problem once the city notified them. Say, hey, 
you're holding people days beyond they're supposed to be free. We're not paying for it and you ought to fix this. And they didn't. What is wrong with this jail? It gets back to the argument that you probably should have an elected sheriff, that the county executive form of government just doesn't have what it takes to operate a jail. And the lawsuit argued that, yeah, they looked at these monthly reports and saw this, but did nothing about it, as you said. And they think that the numbers are probably a lot higher than the 289 people they've identified and probably think that it's a systemic situation. The thing is, too, if you're in jail for more days than you're supposed to be, that could be the difference between keeping your job and losing your job and all sorts of things in your personal life. It is fundamentally wrong. When you're supposed to be released, you're supposed to be released. Uh, it's it's just, you know, can't wait to see what the county's response is. This will fall to Chris Ronane, the county executive, although he's new, so it wasn't his fault that it happened. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are we getting a clearer picture of what is in all of those trains that race through the Northeast Ohio suburbs in Cleveland every day? It's become a critical question about what happened in East Palestine, Laura. We don't really know. We don't know any specifics, and it's not for lack of trying. Officials from fire chiefs in the suburbs to Sherrod Brown have been asking for decades what exactly is in those trains and railroads won't release the information. We know that it's happening every day though. The Solon fire chief says there's not a single train that runs through Cuyahoga County that doesn't have hazardous material on it. And we're talking about dozens of trains every day. That's a really scary thought when these trains go within 50 feet of some people's houses. I was on Opportunity Carter yesterday when one of them was going through. Interestingly, it wasn't the trains where the the tank cars are faded black paint with graffiti. These things were like they'd just been painted all bright and shiny, which I wondered whether, whether Norfolk Southern is trying to change its image. But it was massively long tanker car after tanker car through neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and if you took what happened in East Palestine and plopped it right down there, how many thousands of people would be affected? Right. I think my entire town would probably be evacuated. But and the, the railroads don't seem to be interested in changing their policy, either considering alternate routes that would divert hazardous cargo from the most populous areas or even telling everybody what's in there every day. I mean, obviously, it's a logistics question. If there are dozens of trains rolling through, all of them have hazardous material on them. When are they making those decisions? What are they saying? But the officials are saying, we need to know because we need to have plans. How are we going to get to these trains if there is an accident, if there is a spill? We need to have emergency management policies about them. It would be very easy, though, to to have a network, a a, a secure network, because you don't want to have terrorists getting Mm -hmm. wind of it, but through the fusion center and other ways where they would have to send their manifests for every train that's coming through with roughly what time it's coming through. That way, if something goes wrong, the fire departments, the emergency responders could immediately see what they're dealing with. That that's not asking too much. The train companies know what they're carrying. They have Mm -hmm. manifests. They just have, would have to post them somewhere. This all comes down to the federal regulations. Donald Trump killed federal regulations because he was all about business, 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 even though he showed up in East Palestine claiming to be their hero. You got to put them back. You got, this is basic safety. 
and, and it's not like he took that out specifically, right? Yes, he, he removed some regulations. They stopped some from ever coming into place. But I don't know that they've ever had to release the manifest here. And what this strikes me as just absurd. The county has actually paid consultants to eyeball trains as they go through and take down information from the placards affixed to the rail cars so they can try to figure out what's in them. I mean, this is what we're we're left with, just watching them and guessing what's inside. But as far as... I guess you could say... No, go ahead. I was going to say, but as far as rerouting trains, let me remind you that East Palestine is a rural town, which is probably where they'd be diverting the trains to if they're taking them out of the cities. So this just adds to the flaming culture war that this thing has become. That's what it is. That's become the culture war. It's and and there's arguments that there's race being injected into it. That this is the poor white people who are being victimized by the mean spirited left. It's it's fascinating how the right tries to inject. Race. We should all be on the same side here. The side of the consumer right. that should have more information. Exactly. It's a good story by Pete Krause. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Larry Householder corruption trial had a different kind of witness at the end of the week, a contractor. Layla, who is he and why was he on the stand? Well, we're talking about Steve Miley. He's a contractor from Florida who fixed up Householder's house in, down in Naples. Miley testified that Jeff Longstreth, Householder's former top political aide, hired him to perform repairs on Householder's home after it was damaged in Hurricane Irma. The home repairs are a key part of the case. Prosecutors say it's evidence that Householder personally enriched himself on First Energy's dime as part of the House, House Bill 6 scheme. But Miley said the damage to the home was pretty substantial and made it unable to be mortgaged unless it was fixed up. And it also attracted attention from Householder's Homeowners Association, which got the local zoning department involved. So Householder ended up signing paperwork in October 2019 that made Miley his legal representative at a code enforcement hearing. That was around the same time that he was back in Ohio trying to thwart the eventually unsuccessful campaign to repeal HB6. Miley said he he signed a contract to complete the work within six months and it ended up coming in under budget. That's a first. That should have been the headline. (laughs) (laughs) Householder ended up selling the home at a profit for $600,000. So sounds like jurors were also treated to a video tour of, of this Naples property, which made it seem pretty swanky with high ceilings and a nice kitchen and a pool and stuff like that. So... It'll be today is supposed to be the last prosecution witness, and we might take a look at what elements of a crime have the jurors actually seen. We know so much more than has been presented, and just let's boil it down. Have they been given enough to Mm -hmm. convict these guys? You're listening to Today in Ohio, and let's stick with that trial, Lisa. We saw some serious flaring of tempers in the trial at the end of the week. Lawyers did not like what they saw as curbs on how they did their questioning of a key witness. Did they make any headway with either the judge or later the witness? They did not in either situation. Uh, Larry Householder's primary attorney, Mark Marin, has had it out for federal judge Timothy Black really since the beginning. As you remember, Timothy Black called out the 
uh, you know, the defense attorneys for their behavior during the opening statements of the prosecution. And so in this uh, instance, uh, Marin accuses Black of tying his hands in the cross-examination of witness Dave Greenspan, the former Westlake uh, representative, who was the first witness to contact the FBI about House Bill 6 and voted against the bill when he was in the assembly. So um, without going into the details of the testimony, Marin apparently got into a very aggressive cross-examination, said, is it wrong or nefarious to pass pass bipartisan legislation, talking about House Bill 6? And he said, you know, Householder was smug, but not threatening or violent. That's what Greenspan said. He seemed smug. And then Marin said, well, you called the FBI because Householder was smug and you never mentioned it to the grand jury that you felt threatened by Householder. So Black cut off that line of questioning and uh, Marin says, you know, his hands were tied. Well, lawyers aren't supposed to testify. And he, this lawyer does have a bit of a history of doing that. Uh, But, but again, it really, his questioning did not undermine Dave Greenspan at all. Not at all. And and Greenspan's testimony is pretty fascinating. He was pushing sports gambling in 2019 with lobbyist Neil Clark. And then they talked about, you know, his opposition to House Bill 6. And he implied that Clark told him that Householder would retaliate against him. And Householder, you know, he told Householder himself that he was against House Bill 6. And he was so worried about retaliation that that's why he called the FBI. Yeah, but you you've got to be feel an impact. You've got to feel pressure if you reach out to the FBI and say, "Hey, I'm worried here." That's enough. If I'm a juror, I'm going to think, "Wow, he felt so strongly about this. This goes beyond politics. This goes beyond the normal tussle that they have in legislation. This guy was so worried about it, he called law enforcement, and he wasn't the only one." Right. We're here going to hear from another one today. As a matter of fact, the prosecution will be wrapping up their their side of the case today, and going on the stand is Tyler Furman, who's the former manager of an effort to repeal House Bill 6, who got a $15,000 check from defendant Matt Borges. Yeah, that's going to be good testimony, I suspect. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is up with the Ohio lawmaker who tried to explain away a colleague's position by saying the colleague was an Indian? And did the lawmaker really say he had the license to make that kind of silly statement because he had been to India? Layla, this one was a jaw-dropper. Yes, it was. A state representative, Scott Wiggum from Worcester, he made a, I mean, a whole bunch of comments at a meeting of the Turning Point USA Club at the University of Akron on February 6th. The video of this speech ended up posted to YouTube, and it's cringy at best, but also some of his comments really display a dangerous adherence to some conspiracy theories. But with regard to his colleague, the subject was the death penalty, which Wiggum generally supports. And he was talking about why his Republican colleague, State Senator Naraj Antani from the Dayton area, is seeking to repeal the death penalty. Antani is the first Indian American to serve in the Ohio Senate. And Wiggum told the audience that Antani opposes the death penalty because, quote, he's an Indian, and so they won't even kill cows. And I can say that because I've been over to India. And and Antani's tweeted that he found those comments to be crass and offensive. He said his pro-life position is informed by his Hinduism, but he said he thinks Wiggum's comments are a stark example 
of how Republicans have to learn how to speak about race and religion appropriately if they ever want to attract minority voters to their party. Wiggum eventually apologized to Antani and said he shouldn't have assumed he he knew the reasons for his objection to the death penalty. But but those weren't the only awful comments he made at this event in Akron. He also went into his belief in debunked conspiracy theories surrounding the January 6th riots in Washington, D.C., and, and he also went deep on conspiracy theories related to U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar and uh, you know claims that her name is, that's not her real name, or that she married her brother to get a green card. So... Ohio's finest. <laughs> I, I just the whole I, he's a, he's doing that because he's an Indian, and I can say that because I've been to India, so I completely understand oh. that country and know what makes people tick. You, you would think that as those words started to issue yeah, from yeah. your mouth, you would catch yourself and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm about to step in it." Yep. Nope. Didn't. Didn't. No, yeah. that seemed to him that was uh that was it that was a very good justification for <laughs> what preceded it. But it's all okay. He apologized. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know. He, he just misspoke. <laughs> yeah. God. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Susan Glazer says a bunch of hotel projects are planned for downtown Cleveland. Lisa, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, we've got at least five projects going on in downtown Cleveland. Three of them are brand new hotels. Two of them are renovations of older hotels. So the new hotels will add a total of 437 new rooms to the Cleveland inventory. Uh, David Sangree, who is the president of the Hotel and Leisure Advisor, says the region should be able to absorb this new inventory. And she he points out that some of these most some of these projects are not adding new rooms. So the new hotels, the Fidelity Hotel at East Sixth Street, sixty more four million dollar conversion of the nineteen nineteen Baker Building with ninety seven rooms, the W Hotel. 210 rooms in Erie View Tower at East 12th Street in St. Clair. And that will have also high-end apartments and fine dining to replace the old Stouffer's Top of the Town. Uh, another new one, Bridgeworks Ohio City, a 100 million multi-use facility on the northeast corner of West 25th in Detroit. That'll have 130 hotel rooms, but it also has office space, retail, and apartments. And uh, that's a 16-story one. So the big renovations, Renaissance Cleveland, $74 million renovation is 50% complete. Uh, this is a 1918 hotel with 491 rooms. They're going to totally redo the lobby, remove the fountain, and make it more, uh, more, uh, inviting. And then the Delta by Marriott at 3416 Euclid is converting the old 1964 Holiday Inn that's been through many name changes and has been closed for many years. And they're going to be converting that into a hotel. It's interesting to see that we we have a demand for this again. We had a huge hotel explosion in 2016 in advance of the Republican National Convention. Uh, interesting to see that, what, seven years later, we're, demand is apparently increasing. You wouldn't have that kind of investment unless there was demand for it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Euclid Avenue Healthline is hailed as a modern transportation solution, but we really don't have anything like it on the west side. Will a big infusion of state money help make one west side bus line more like what the east side has? Laura? I don't think we're going to be seeing exactly the same thing with the the median that's always the bus rapid transit, but this would add a lot of uh, use to West 25th Street's bus line. And it's a $12 million improvement that I believe just during rush hours, that bus would be in the middle of the, the street and make it a lot easier. That's a tight corridor with 
you know, a lot of people on it, a lot of pedestrians, a lot of cars, there's parking on either side. So anything they can do to make it better and really connect that whole north-south from highways up to the lake, I think would be really useful. Yeah, it's uh, is it tied at all to what's going on at the Metro Health campus? I have not seen that, but I think it would help, right? Obviously, it would help people get to and from there, either to see people that are in the hospital or to work, which would help. And Ohio City is just a booming area. Lots of people want to live there. So I would think that it, whatever they build, it would get a lot of use. And so there's another $38 million coming from local and federal sources for this application. They could start a project in March of 2025, end it by 2026. Um, and that's all part of this draft state improvement, uh, like list of projects. There's also some roads that they would do. 77 and State Route I-8 in Akron would get $6 million. Uh, $3 million for a third lane against I-76 in Akron. There's a whole bunch of like $400 million in new transportation spending that is possible. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. On Tuesday, we'll be talking about Jim Jordan, public discourse, and the final prosecution witness in the Larry Householder trial. Come on back for another discussion of the news. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening to this podcast. <music>